Oh, Father, how easily the words come across our lips, and yet how resistant and thick our hearts are sometimes to surrender in love and walk in obedience before you and your word. Thank you for the encouragement, the blessing, the strengthening factor it is to gather and to sing together, to remind ourselves that Jesus is Lord, and that it was through his blood that was shed on that old rugged cross that we have newness of life, that the old has passed away and all things are becoming new in Christ. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us for another week. Thank you for the promises of your word. And even as we see in our text today that you are faithful to your promises and you are a covenant-keeping God. Father, may we approach the word now with all humility uh, Lord, may your Holy Spirit have great direction upon us and in us, using the message as you see fit, like a scalpel, knowing the needs, the specific needs of each and every one of us, even applying it in different ways, that we would go from here, walking in the truth, rejoicing in the Lord, willing to surrender ourselves to the obedience of the word. In Jesus' name we pray this morning committing ourselves to the task of preaching and to the task of listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was a kid in the south side of Chicago, my dad pastored a Bible church there, and it was in the suburbs, and, and uh, on the block where our parsonage and church was, behind the church was an empty, a number of empty lots. We called it the prairie. Um, I'm sure it was not near as big of an area as I remember in my mind's eye. You know how it is when you're a child, things always seem bigger. And you go back to Grandpa's house now, and it's a lot littler than it seemed when you were a, a, a child. But we had this field back there that we called the prairie, and I had um, a sp- kind of an inner group of crony friends that lived in the neighborhood there. Johnny Simon lived right next door and Eddie Hazier across the street, and Ernie Garza up from Eddie Hazier, and the four of us um, were pretty good buddies, and we liked to play army in that field in the prairie. Once in a while, we lit it on fire. Um, We never admitted that, but it happened. And uh, with great delight, watched the fire department show up to put it out. Got a little afraid when it got behind my dad's garage, but... uh, You know, one of the things that we liked to do was we liked to build forts. And we would drag junk from all over the place. But, you know, our, our favorite construction uh, technique for building forts was in that um, northern Illinois, Midwest, uh, about three foot of topsoil before we'd hit some orange clay. We loved to dig into the ground. And we'd go in my dad's garage and uh, get my dad's stuff. Their dads didn't have stuff like that, it seemed like. And we'd always be getting picks and shovels and stuff out of my dad's garage, and I'd get in trouble for leaving them out in the field. But we would dig holes. They seemed big to us, maybe three foot wide and maybe six feet long, and just dig down until it got too hard to dig, maybe two and a half, three feet down, and boy, they seemed like big holes to us. And then we'd go get our junk, two-by-fours and plywood, and we'd cover over the holes, and then we'd take the dirt pile, and we'd shovel it back on top of the plywood lid, and we'd have these underground forts, and 
And you know, as long as we were working on our project and we had great vision and we had all kinds of ideas and it would take all much of the day Saturday and late in the afternoon we were finally done and then it's kind of like, well, what do you do with your fort? And so we'd go home and find an old blanket or a piece of carpet and put it down in there and, and once in a while we'd start tunneling then inside the fort. But inevitably, our conversation then would turn to who's in charge around here? And whose fort is this? And then we would begin to talk about the rules of our fort. And before it was over, guess what would happen? Schism in the body. Fighting, infighting, because Eddie Hazer wanted to be in charge, and I never liked it when Eddie Hazer was in charge, and, and it was my dad's shovels that we dug the fort with, and Johnny Simon was younger, so he shouldn't be in charge, and... Ernie Garza, well, I don't know whether he would ever be in charge or not, but he didn't like any of us by the end of the day, and we would be fighting because we couldn't agree on the rules, and we couldn't get along, and our little group would fragment, and by the time sunset was approaching, we would head home, usually mad at, our, at one another. Um, typical of boys, though, by the next morning, we didn't remember that, and we would head back to the fort with our Tonka trucks and G.I. Joes and start in again. It's interesting, isn't it, though, when you get a group of people together and, and they have a new infrastructure, they have a new uh, approach to starting a society. Four boys, a fort, an empty field. What are the laws by which they're going to live? Who's going to govern? What's going to happen? And on a much greater level, as I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 9, I want you to, to think of Noah and his sons coming off of the ark and and he did that in chapter 8 last week. And there they are. And it's a little bit like being out in the prairie. And there's nobody else there but you and your fort. And now what? Who's going to be in charge? And how are we going to operate? And what's going to happen? And in, in a very real sense, Genesis chapter 9 is, is a clear statement. And there are some directives from God as to foundational requirements for the cohesiveness of society and for mankind to function. So God's going to give some directives, some imperatives actually. You'll see in our text today that some of the very instruction that God gives in Genesis chapter 9 following Noah's exodus from the ark. And I can kind of picture that big boat there and I don't you know where they went exactly and how they lived. It's interesting, isn't it? We know from chapter 8 that right away Noah worshipped the Lord that he still was a righteous man, we have coming very soon, uh, either by surprise or by the carelessness of his own heart. He's uh, naked and drunk in his tent. That'll be next week. Kind of an R-rated message, I guess. Didn't think of it that way. but have to wait and see what that one's like. But as we read Genesis chapter 9, and I'd like to back up just a little bit because uh, starting with verse 18, I guess, to put it in its context. And, and then we'll read through Genesis chapter 9 through verse 17 this morning. We're looking at guidelines for a new beginning. How is mankind going to function? What are some of the lessons that have been learned from the past? We know from the past that man imploded and that, that culture and society was on the downgrade for hundreds of years to the degree that sin and... and uh, the arrogance of mankind and the evil wickedness of his heart overwhelmed the world. 
And so now we have a new beginning. How is man going to hold it together? What are God's directives going to be? And what happens when man begins to ignore the imperatives and directives of living from a holy God? Now let's get into it now. Genesis chapter 8, begin with verse 18. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives and All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark, one kind after another. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said to in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. And as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and and increase in number and fill the earth. And the fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. And they are given into your hands. And everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. And as for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. And I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I bring clouds over the earth and a rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. And so God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. It's an interesting passage, isn't it? It's from it springs some curiosities. I often wonder, well, how was it that God communicated with Noah? We don't really know, do we? Was it an audible voice? Was it in the form of a dream or some kind of a vision? But somehow God clearly communicated to Noah. We have Noah, his three sons, 
all of their wives. So we have eight people now on the earth. We have this earth that is renewing itself. We see that God at the end of chapter 8 has set the seasons in place. We now have summer, winter, spring, fall. We have uh, the earth very much, I would assume, as we know it today. It is evidently very different from the pre-flood globe that they knew. Things have changed. The animals are now moving out from the ark, and here's Noah, and he has an opportunity to start all over again. I think that it's interesting that right away, number one, God gives a plan for repopulation. Let's just notice and break down the passage of what God's instruction is here, and then we'll draw some applications in conclusions. In conclusion, number one, we see God's plan for repopulation. We know back in Genesis chapter 1, and you can flip back there, that this instruction was given to Adam to begin with, wasn't it? In 128. Did you remember that instruction? And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female created them. Verse 27, then 28 of chapter 1 of Genesis. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. He established man over the animal kingdom and he gave man the mandate to fill the earth, which man had done. We recognize here that, in essence, God is pro-family, isn't he? God is pro-family. Noah, in the new beginning, spread out and fill the earth. One of the things that we're going to observe later on is that on each of these points of instruction that God gives, we will see great momentum and movements in our world today to go counter to God's instruction. What do we hear all the time in our world today? There's overpopulation, birth control, mandated sterilization in parts of the world. You will notice, as we've been noticing that man's heart is always bent against God's instruction. And one of the things God is doing is here is, look, we, Noah, you know as well as I know, we've all seen what happens to man's natural bent until the sin is to the, to the degree that God said, I'm scrubbing off the face of the earth. And so as soon as he gets off the ark, the mandate immediately again is, go, have families, and fill the earth. It is God's plan in his sovereign design of the ages that this earth would be populated with worshipers, with people who acknowledge him as God and enjoy and fill the earth. Mandate number one. He repeats this in verse seven, if you'll notice, chapter nine, again, verse seven. And he says again, as for you, be fruitful and increase in number and multiply on the earth. And he says the word again, increase upon it. It is God's plan, and I would suggest in this context that if you're going to hold, and this is kind of a premise in which I interpret this chapter, if we're going to take, for example, verses 6 and 7, which are the mandate for capital punishment, and that holds today, then every other instruction in this chapter would hold for today. There's no differentiation between the instructions, and God says, this is my covenant, my agreement, my instruction to you, and it's for all generations. In other words, if you're going to set up a camp out in the field and you're all going to get along, do it my way. And you'll find that if you do it my way, it works. And so as mankind 
increases and fills the earth, what happens? Children grow up and inventors are born and it's the way God designed the earth to work. People are to have families. And I recognize that there are reasons that people cannot have children and there's good reason for that. I also recognize that man can distort God's instruction and what an example we saw of a distortion of what a family is. And this pitiful young lady in California and my heart was heavy for her. I had compassion for her as she sought to find love and, and, a, and family wholeness, having six children already and then having eight more. And, and uh, you know, But she's very committed to loving them and God bless her. She's going to need assistance, that's for sure. But wasn't it magnified in that context? Number one, the, the, the secular media's vulturizing of this story. Why in the world would you want to have so many children? What is, it's like something's wrong with you if you want to have children. Secondly, I observed as I watched that story a couple weeks ago, it just affirmed to me God's design, his first design, and I know even in these circumstances it doesn't always happen, but God's first design is that there be a daddy and a mommy and they take care of the family. And when you look at how God planned things and how God designed things, it works. It works. And when man begins to tamper with God's plan, he, he gets it out of kilter. Instruction number one to Noah and to us, we'll see later in this mandate, God bless Noah, verse 1, be fruitful. First of all, number one, God's plan for repopulation. Secondly, we read in verse 2, an interesting concept. We just read in chapter 1 where man was to have dominion over the animal kingdom, but notice the change that happens following the flood. Now, I've been pondering this, and I haven't quite figured it out. I'm going to tell you what I think, and uh, I did not see any commentaries, three different Genesis commentaries that I've been depending on, and uh, uh, they speculated for different things, but... um, I kind of like my idea better. The fear and dread of you, it says, verse 2, will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. What an interesting instruction following the flood, isn't it? Where man had dominion over animals, and we don't know for sure if people before the flood did not eat meat. I would imagine uh, that guys like Lamech, who pounded their chest and killed their enemies and murdered them, were meat eaters. I would suggest that there was every distortion possible before the flood. Every corruption that is possible for man to invent happened before the flood. And and it's interesting to me, though, that in this context of a new beginning and instruction for society and for Noah, and this is how you do it, go and have a family, and then number two, God's plan, I, I put it down that this is God's plan for a reorganization. There's like a reorganization that takes place following the flood. Now, I was going to suggest to you what my understanding would be. Why did he do that? Why does he say, okay, now, from now on, you can eat animals? And notice he says, he doesn't say you have to eat animals. And so it's not wrong to be a vegetarian. But God allows us to eat meat as well. And I'm not even going to go into the discussion of who's a 
uh, what, about being vegetarian and meatitarian and all that. Obviously, as we discover what is good for us and what's not good for us, we want to use wisdom in eating. And uh, we also know from Paul's epistle in, in Romans that we have to be careful about criticizing someone uh, for their choice of food and that it's okay to eat these things. Obviously, when your doctor tells you to stop eating red meat, listen to your doctor. God put him there for a reason. On the other hand, don't have a guilty conscience when you have a good steak coming off the grill. If it fits. God said, eat the animals. I, you know, I, on number one, I was suggesting that God is pro-family. And on number three, we're going to see that God is pro-life. And I was trying to think of what God was pro in number two. And I decided God is pro-NRA in number two. Um, <laughs> That's not true, okay? That's just um, me thinking. But and I was thinking, well, God is pro-hunting at least, right? God is pro the slaughter of animals. Now, why is that? I can remember when I was a little boy getting in the car with my dad and my Uncle Norman and driving up to northern Wisconsin to Grandpa's farm. I love to go to Grandpa's farm up in northern Wisconsin, Wausau, Wisconsin, and um, I was about six years old, but I was not in first grade yet. Or if I was, I got to go with him. And we were going in the fall to butcher. It was crispy and cold in, in uh, I don't know when it was, October, November, before deer season, I'm sure, when they were butchering. And Grandpa had a steer that we were going to slaughter. It was the first time I had ever seen that. And I was an impressionable little boy, and I remember my dad had the the rifle, and they had a bucket of grain, and some of you might not be comfortable with hearing this, but it's the way it is, and uh, it's the way they always did it on Grandpa's farm, and they had a bucket of grain, and that big old steer, maybe about a thousand pound steer with his big wide forehead, put his nose down in that bucket, and my dad shot, and that thing, and I couldn't believe how fast that thing dropped, and it kicked, and, and the butchering process began, and began, and the blood was let out of him, and hung him up and I mean I took this in this was this was really something and you know I, I don't know why God in essence permitted man almost mandated that man dominate animals here there is something unnatural about the kill that's a beautiful animal. And when you kill it and you let its blood run on the ground and then you're eating its meat, what is that all about? What is this a picture of? I have just a couple of suggestions, and one is that I think it implies, it implies that in the pre-flood world, because remember, when are, what is the context of this instruction? It's immediately following the flood. And this is the new order. This is how things, we're reorganizing things, God says. And under the new organization, God says, kill animals and eat them. I wonder, and this is pure speculation on my part, but do you notice, if you look back and, um, in chapter 6, verse 7, we have a little bit of a clue, because I remember being a little bit puzzled by this verse, even though I did not comment on it. In chapter 6, verse 7, it says, So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men, and then look at and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. And I've wondered, why did God put it like that? I can understand man's disobedience. I can understand man spitting in the eye of a holy God. But what about God's creation? He had pronounced that it was good. 
And we love the animal kingdom. We love the natural world. We love to study it. We love to put pictures of it on our walls. We love to... Um, I was walking down the fence line yesterday and I saw a bluebird. And, and you don't see them very often. And I noted it and it was nice to see. And I often watch the hawks as they watch the field up in these trees. We love that natural world. It's beautiful. It's good. Why did God say in 6-7, I'm going to wipe it off the face of the earth. I'm going to wipe mankind off the face of the earth. And I'm going to wipe all the animals and the creatures and the creeping things. I can't believe I even made them. And I wonder if after the flood, one of the things that in this... And remember the Nephilim, the giants before the flood and we suggested that there was incredible unleashed demonic activity demons entering into humankind and that even the offspring were affected by it and we don't even really know what the proper interpretation of that is evidently that the animal kingdom had even become somehow out of control or mankind had abused the animal kingdom even in horrible lifestyle There was evidently sinful distortion that involved humankind and the animal kind. And following the flood, God did two things. Number one, he said, from now on, I'm going to put a terror in them. And did you notice the categories of animals that he said? And the word is, uh, I said, just now said the word terror. That's what the Hebrew word means. In verse 2, it says, I will put fear and dread in the animals. And remember, as we've been going through this Genesis series... Haven't we been asking ourselves, as we observe the natural world, does it fit with what we see in Scripture? Or what we see in Scripture, does it fit with what we see in the natural world? And isn't that the truth? Regularly, I'll kick deer away. A fox will come running through the woods and it's sense here. Off it goes. And notice all of the categories of animal. We, we used to try to wade in the water up in Michigan and Crystal Lake and try to catch fish and minnows and bluegills that were right here around our ankles. But immediately our shadow, our movement in the water, phew, phew, they just flit off. Filled, filled with what? Filled with terror. The deer runs away as fast as he can. Generally, even grizzly bear do. I've had them run away from me. And so what we see here is a kind of a reorganization and Evidently, God said, I'm not going to allow humankind and animal kind to mingle in the way that they did before the flood. And evidently, even though it doesn't say it, there's an implication that things are different now and God's separating humankind from animal kind, all except which category did he not mention would have a terror in them. Remember the categories from Genesis chapter 1 and 2? He left out the cattle category. Goats and sheep and horses and cows and camels, the cattle category, those animals which can be domesticated. In God's sovereign design and helping mankind live, why, you can walk into a barnyard full of dairy cows. They've done it many times. They scratch their ears. We had a couple old cows, old granny cows, that I would grab them by the neck and pick my feet up when I was milking cows in high school. And I'd just go scratch her ears real hard, and she'd just stand there. And I'd, then I'd grab her around the neck and pick my knees up, and I probably weighed about 165 pounds then. And she would just there and then just gradually just begin to shake and take me off. And they'd be lying down in the, in the loafing pen, and I'd go get up on top of them and play with them. It's cattle. But I never have done that with a black bear, a cougar, even a chimpanzee. Ultimately, it just doesn't work. So God put a terror. The word is terror. God is separating animals from humans. And then the other thing he's doing, somehow he's, 
he's putting man in a dominant position and he's esteeming man over animals and he's allowing man to eat an animal and evidently that's partly a picture of man's dominance. I also, and the commentary suggests this, that it's possible that as man slaughters an animal and blood flows, that man is reminded on a regular basis and every time you eat a Big Mac with a burger in it, okay, every time you eat a piece of chicken, you recognize that blood had to flow for you to live. Is it possible that there's somehow a beginning of a picture of the importance of blood for life? But then he even gives that instruction, doesn't he? So for our protection, he puts a fear in animals. For our provision, he allows us to eat animals, our protection and our provision. And then he says, everything that lives and moves will be food for you, verse 3 again. But, verse 4, you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. And for your lifeblood, verse 5, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. We certainly have God creating a distinct difference and separation between humankind and animal kind. First of all, we have God's plan for repopulation. We then have God's plan for a reorganization of creation. And following the flood, we now have God's plan to protect civilization. God's plan, number three, to protect civilization. And do you notice, and you could even look, that this is then reaffirmed in the uh, Levitical law. It's... um, In Exodus chapter 21, if you wanted to take a look at it, where he even says, if an animal kills a man, it is to be put to death. According to Genesis chapter 9, the police officer who shot that chimpanzee this past week did exactly what God said to do. When an animal crosses the boundary, well, and it didn't kill that woman, but it just about has, hasn't it? It's just horrible, the injury he he brought to that woman, that pitiful situation. That animal was to be shot and killed. And in Exodus chapter 21, that's even reaffirmed. If a bull gores a man and he dies, the animal has to be killed. And then even if a man is negligent with his animal and his animal is killed, the man is held liable for his negligence of an animal that's out of control. This is God's elementary and foundational and basic plan to protect civilization. I want you to listen closely to me because we're out of time and I want to make the point of the message this morning. History has shown before the flood that mankind left to himself will do what? Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel. What did Cain do to Abel? Bam! Killed him. Just another generation away, and Lamech comes home and boasts to his wives, I had a young man disrespect me, and I killed him. And evidently the pre-flood world was filled with murder, murderers and hatred and fighting and sin, and it was chaos, and it was out of control. And and even the animals were mingled in there somehow. And God says, Noah, we have a new rule, buddy. You've got to recognize that for society and for civilization to be established, according to my code, life is sacred. And implicit in the command, notice what he says. You're not to eat the lifeblood. The blood is God's. We don't have time to look that up, but in Leviticus he said, when you spill the blood of those animals, don't you eat it. That is to be poured out to me. Already right here, I think it's symbolism. It's pointing to the atonement, ultimately, of our Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood. There's something about the blood that's going to wash away our sins. And in the Old Testament context, you have the animal blood that was special. But notice what he he said here. 
He said, you must not eat the life, meat with the lifeblood in it. And by the way, that was reaffirmed at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, even in the New Testament, you're not to eat the blood. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And he said, it's for whoever sheds the blood of man, verse 6. Think about the implications of that. I think that is a clear, I never really thought about it this way, but that is a clear statement of protection for the unborn. Because what is in an unborn baby right away? What's course? It has its own blood, and it's separate from its mom's blood. And it's a, it has its own genetic code, its own DNA, its own blood type. And when you abort that baby, you shed its blood. This is a direct mandate against suicide. This is a direct mandate against murder. This is a, gr- a direct mandate against unjust war. You can't just go pillage and burn and, and murder and wreak havoc. And so God gives a word of protection. And he also gives a word of distinction. It's a word of protection for the sanctity of human life. And notice, you listen to me, notice that the downgrade of every culture, the downgrade of every society is when they begin to disregard this and they no longer exercise capital uh, discipline. They no longer put to death those murderers. And that's totally reaffirmed in Romans chapter 13 with the sword of government. It is a government's responsibility to carry out just laws and to put to death people who do murder. Notice that when a society begins to abort, notice when a society begins to promote euthanasia, notice when a society begins to promote the mechanisms whereby people can self-induce their suicide, and notice that we begin then to enter into a whole era of amorality and immorality to the point where there is no more a rule system. Nothing makes sense. Even our accounting laws are not held to anymore. And when you begin to erode the foundational laws of civilization and you enter into this amoral culture, then every man just does what's right in his own eyes and you once again have the chaos of the pre-flood. And God says, I don't want that to happen. So we have a plan for repopulation, a plan for reorganization, a plan to protect civilization. It's a word of protection and ultimately too, it is a word of distinction. Notice that it is humankind when they die that capital punishment is to take care of and it is not animal kind when they're killed. There's just a difference between an animal and a person. Do you remember what I said at the beginning? Do you remember how I said that what we see in a humanistic, naturalistic man apart from God's system is always a distortion of what God gave as his rule? God says, no sex, be- no sex before marriage. What are we rampant with? Sex before marriage. God says, fill the earth, populate the earth. Man says, oh, we're full. We can't have families. And the earth isn't full at all. And so we have this mandate, and, and, uh, and, and we see that, number one, in application and conclusion here quickly, we see that mankind left to himself will always self-destruct. We've got to stick to God's rules, or we will always have a bent away towards self-destruction. Secondly, man's natural tendency is always to drift away and eventually openly defy God's laws. That's what I was just referencing, this idea of uh, what do we have in our culture today? We have a downplay of human rights, right? And, uh, and, and unborn rights and human rights around the world. But don't you dare tamper with kittens and eagle eggs and, and uh, uh, sea otters. 
And we have the elevation of animal life, a direct defiance of exactly the instruction God gave following the flood. Number one, man left to himself will self-destruct. Number two, man's natural tendency is always to turn around and distort God's instructions. But in it all, we end up with the covenant. We'll pick that up next week, the Noahic covenant. One of the lessons we need to learn here as Noah comes off the ark in chapter 9, and this is, a, this is a great thing, and somebody needs to hear this this morning. We have a God of new beginnings. We have a God of new beginnings. In the middle of a chaotic world, God scrubs the face of the earth. He preserves righteousness. He gives instruction for obedient, righteous living and blessed living. And he says, I'll give you a new chart, a new start. I'll give you a new beginning. Anybody here need a new beginning today? Anybody here tired of the chaos that you've created in your world? Listen. This is the same God. And through the Lord Jesus Christ, who became sin for us, he'll scrub away the surface of your world today and give you a new beginning. Will you surrender your life to him and bow in submission to him? I challenge you to do that. Let's bow in prayer, please. Father, help us this morning to just be still and know that you are God and that we are not and that when we try to take over, we wreck things. Father, help us to do things with your orderliness and to recognize that you have reasons why you gave specific instruction. And Father, I thank you very much for the picture of a new beginning for mankind. Most of all, what is later reflected even in the Noahic Covenant is the new covenant that is in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we can have a new beginning in Christ. Challenge our hearts. Teach us through this brief message. In Jesus' name I pray.